Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. One of the things that question answer 21 drives home for me, and I've said this before, but if you want to slog through Calvin and struggle with his writing, I grant it's not always the easiest reading, but if you want to get to the most edifying stuff that Calvin has written, I encourage you to read book three of the Institutes. That's wonderful uh, theology dealing with our union with Christ. One of the things that Calvin drives home, and I think is one of the things that we forget about in terms of a Calvinistic doctrine of salvation or what we believe regarding salvation. You know, we can talk about faith proceed or the spirit preceding faith. Almost had to write myself up in charges there. But the spirit proceeding faith, working that faith in our hearts, that's the spirit that unites us to Christ. And as we take hold of Christ by faith, it drives home the point that Calvin makes. And his point is simply this. As long as Christ remains outside of us, he is of no benefit to us. And the more I I contemplate that quote, it becomes more and more profound as to how Calvin had insight into Paul, into John, into the significance of Christ. Because the reality is, if Christ accomplishes redemption, and he does everything that the Father has set out for him to do, but there's never a way for us to take hold of that redemption, then our life is useless. His work is useless. It is no benefit to us because we have no way to reach into Christ and to take hold of what he has done to make that work our work. Now, there's different ways in which, unfortunately, some Reformed people have formulated this. But to keep it real simple, what I like about our catechism, and question answer 21 in particular, is it makes it very clear that when you have faith in Christ, you have the benefits of Christ. If you remember nothing else from this sermon, just remember that statement. As you have faith in Christ, you have the benefits of Christ. He is your Christ. That's the point of what the catechism is driving home. Simply, uh, without any theological language. It just means when you believe Christ is your Redeemer, you have eternal life. You possess it. That's the reality you go through life with that promise and with that assurance. And so what the catechism is basically driving home or teaching us or instructing us is dealing with that issue of is it really that simple? How do we know that we really possess redemption? Because again, we can talk about redemption theoretically. You know, there's Christ has made redemption. But how do we know that the redemption of Christ really is our redemption? Why do we have the Word of God? How do we know that faith and believing really takes hold of Christ and really does something? How do we know that? 
Well, as we look at this, we'll see first, only the believing ones. Secondly, believing is life. And lastly, believing the Catholic faith. And so let's begin with only the believing ones. The Catechism wants to draw a distinction, and it's an important distinction. It's talked about the universality of the fall. And what that means is that when Adam ate of the fruit, it means that every single human being is guilty before the throne of God. Uh, that's the reality of it. Because of what Adam has done, we are born under a sentence of condemnation. We deserve hell, and that's the end of the story. That's, that's honestly what we deserve. So we say, I want justice from God. You better think about what you're saying. That means you want God to just give you exactly what you deserve in your federal head, Adam, which is eternal punishment. That's not a good thing. And the Catechism then is telling us, but it's not that every single human being is left in this position. So it leaves us with a question, well then, who receives Christ and who doesn't receive Christ? Because after all, you can look at Romans 5, and, and we've talked about the consistent universalists, and what I mean by that is where you have universalists like Arminians, where they believe that the work of Christ could be applied to everyone. All you have to do is choose by your faith or by your will to have faith and believe in Christ and, and God is sort of, uh, in a sense, indifferent to it because he's just looking in history, seeing who's going to choose him, who's not going to choose him, and he leaves it up to us. That's, that's one universal view. Now, the Arminian view is not the consistent universalist view. A consistent universalist view goes to the extreme of saying that as all have sinned in Adam, so all will be redeemed in Christ. And so the consistent universalist saying no matter what you believe, no matter how you conduct yourself in this age, no, no matter what your convictions are in terms of Christ, it doesn't matter. Everyone is redeemed in Christ. Now again, I don't believe this. This is not my view but you may encounter individuals who lay this out for you. Uh, the two passages they appeal to is 1 Corinthians 15. We've gone through that. Uh, remember in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we saw clearly that in verse 23, it says those who belong to Christ. So there's a differentiation or, or a difference in terms of who receives death, who receives life. All humanity is born under a sentence of death, those who belong to Christ receive the sentence or declaration of life. And so you have there the difference of those who are in Adam, that's all human, humanity, those who receive life are those who are in Christ. Romans 5, something similar, uh, where if you look in verse 17, it says those who receive the free gift of righteousness. So again, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 if you look at them and somebody holds them out to you and says, look, you see, everyone dies in Christ, all receive blessings, in, in, or everyone dies in Adam, all receive blessings in Christ, therefore the whole human race is saved. That's where you got to drill down the context. Romans 5, verse 17, those who belong to Christ are those who receive the free gift of righteousness. So the whole human race doesn't receive that gift, only those set apart in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, those who belong to Christ. And so it's important to understand that these nuances are not because I'm just a grumpy Calvinist. 
It's not just because I'm pledging allegiance to the catechism that's just some human author, but it's important to understand that these men have thought about what these texts are teaching and are putting it in, in a way that we can understand what's profound, but also give us the assurance. Because we may say, well then, how do I know that Christ is my mediator, right? That, that's an important question. I can understand theoretically there are those who belong to Christ, those who do not belong to Christ. But the thing I want to know is what does it mean for one to belong to Christ? When we look at question answer 20 before we get to 21 explicitly answering that, in question answer 20 it wants us to understand that God is the one who has set apart his people. Right? God is the one who has said there's those who have Christ, those who do not have Christ. Now again, as we look at John, I wanted to look at his gospel, because a lot of times people can look at, say, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? And they stop there. And they say, see, God loved the world, loved all of humanity, therefore all of humanity has Christ. But that's not what John 3.16 teaches us. John 3.16 is not teaching us that every single human being is one that receives Christ. Uh, John is one who also talks about these plays in light and darkness. Some people say, well, this is some sort of a Gnosticism that's going on of a secret knowledge. So one can only know if they have Christ if they have a secret knowledge of having Christ. Again, how, how is that very helpful? And is that really what John is teaching us? When we look at John's gospel, and we have this interaction in John 3.16, we have to understand what, what is Christ teaching there? What's going on in the context of that chapter? We've talked about this before. Again, if somebody lays this out to you and says, here's a, a universalistic view of redemption. Every human being receives Christ. You say, really? Is that what Christ is saying? Because it seems... In John's gospel, he's really warning Nicodemus about having a confidence in his birth, isn't he? Nicodemus truly trying to understand who he is, what he is, what it means to, to be a follower of Christ, is honestly asking some difficult questions. The irony is he comes to Christ at night. Again, the play on light and darkness. He's in the dark. He's not understanding who Christ is. John does play on this. It's not some sort of Gnosticism. But Christ is laying out there that it's about being born again, born from above, that it's the Spirit that gives new life. And so it's by the Spirit that one receives these blessings, and it's only by being born of God that one is going to have faith in Christ. And so when, when John says this, he's laying out in chapter 3 clearly, those who have Christ, those who do not have Christ. And the blessings of possessing Christ... John's trying to hammer home. Because why is Nicodemus so taken back about a new birth? We're, we're familiar with this. It's because Nicodemus, I, I'm a pedigree. I'm from Abraham. I'm from Moses. I'm from the right line. What's the problem? Christ's saying it's not be, from, about being from the right line. It's about being born from above. And so John 3, John 20, has this understanding of, of this distinction here. John 20 gives us this assurance and, and this differentiation of these signs. These are written so that you may believe in Christ. So again, it's that call for you to believe in Christ. 
What does Christ say in John 3? He doesn't just talk about the spirit works and then somehow maybe you'll figure it out. Because again, there's some people that believe that and say, well, you can't really know if you have Christ and you can't really know if you're a Christian unless you have some sort of specific revelation. But is that what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus? Is that what John's saying towards the close of his gospel? Because what does Christ say, even in the context of John 3, where he's beginning to lay out his mission as John summarizing his mission? That's sort of the, the correlation here. Jesus says that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So there's a difference there in the human race, isn't there? The ones who believe in Christ do not die. They possess eternal life. There's a class of believers in the human race, and there's a class of unbelievers, which means that as you have Christ and believe in Christ, you have the blessings of Christ Jesus. That's where this gospel begins. And so notice then in this text as we get here in verse, verse 30 of John 20, that he did many uh, other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in his book, uh, so we know that there's many things Christ has done. These are written so that you may believe. So the point of this writing that John's doing, John's telling us there, there's a, a reason, a, a, a purpose behind what I'm doing. I basically went through the events of Christ, what I witnessed, what I know, and as I've gone through these events of Christ, I found these to be the most persuasive. So what's John doing? Well, he's writing an apologetics book. Now again, a, apologetics is not an apology for the truth. It's not John saying, I'm sorry that Christ is the only way, or I'm sorry to write this. But apologetics in the sense that John is setting out to write a defense of the Christian faith. He wants the Jewish people to understand Christ is the Messiah, wants us to understand that the Messiah is not just coming to the Jewish people, and so he writes these persuasive things. So what are the things John writes that he finds so persuasive? Well, we have the prologue where he clearly makes a correlation of Christ being from eternity. We have the wedding of Cana, uh, where you have there the picture of the heavenly banquet, uh, where his mom comes to him and says, hey, I, I want you to turn this water into wine, uh, we got a problem, or I want you to do something with this. There's a problem, we're out of wine. Jesus says, what do you want me to do about this? Well, she's professing and knows there's something about Christ that, that's significant. Christ turns the water into wine, basically saves the banquet, saves the reputation of, of the man who's managing the, the, the wedding there, and it's ultimately pointing to the picture of the heavenly banquet, isn't it? I mean, it's fellowshipping, dining with Christ, having a feast of abundance. It's Christ there laying out the intention of where he's going with his ministry. Why does Christ enter into the world? Not just to save us from our sins, not just to save us from a bad predicament. That's obviously part of it and necessary, but it's ultimately to fellowship and commune with us, not only in terms of the spirit, but in terms of eternity. And that's what, what that picture is, is pointing to. It's showing the bigger picture of entering into the presence of Christ, celebrating, having a banquet of abundance, and being in the presence of the Lord. We think even of resurrection narratives. 
We think of Lazarus, where Jesus weeps and experiences the pain of death. And yet he simply calls out, and a dead man walks out of a tomb who's been dead uh, for several days. And as he walks out of the tomb, we see that certainly Jesus is the Lord of life. The feeding of the 5,000, uh, where Christ equates himself with the bread from heaven, wanting them to understand that life is not about food or drink, which is what we get caught up as human beings. We struggle with this. We, we, we get hungry. We get scared. Things happen in our lives, and, and we think everything's out of control. But Christ in, in that narrative is pointing the people to the bigger picture, the reality that life is beyond this age. True life is being found in the Lord and being found in the identity of Christ. We think lastly, just one other example that John appeals to of Christ walking on the water or the sea. You think about the sea in Scripture, sea is something of turmoil, it's unrest, a place of, of the dead, it's a place of the unknown, it's chaos, it's disorder. Everything that's wrong with this world is, is sort of the sea becomes a metaphor for the curse. Christ simply walking on the storming sea is showing that Christ is a Lord over the chaos. There is no chaos. There is nothing that's going to upset the purpose of God. He's going to accomplish this. So when we get to the end here, and this is sort of the first ending in chapter 21, kind of becomes the epilogue to the gospel. 21's, we could think of it almost as the Easter egg after the credits, is kind of what chapter 21 becomes. But nevertheless, it ends with two endings, reminding us of the significance of all that Christ has done. And again, uh, at the end of 21, what does John say? All the books in the world would not contain everything that Christ has done. And so John, in writing this, wants us to understand that he's writing this for a particular purpose. That it's not just about a universal or non-universal technical thing. It's John saying, I want you to really understand and think about this Christ. So he's inviting us to engage our mind, to read this, think about the Old Testament prophecies, and to come to believe, and to understand that when we are the believing ones, we are those who have life. That's, that's simply where we're going. That, that's the simple point where I've taken all this time to say. I guess I could have just said it. But that's the proof of where John is going. As you look at these stories, think of the bigger picture and reality of Christ. Think about what he's doing in these narratives, especially John's gospel. There's symbolism that always goes beyond these miracle stories. We went through a couple of them. But moving on then, as we move from question answer 20 to 21, still looking at this passage, there's the assurance that believing is life. So we know that there's a class of believers and there's an invitation and a call to believe, a call to read the gospel and, and wrestle with what John's laying out. Now we have the assurance that when we actually believe, we have Christ. And so the Catechism in 21 assures us that this is a knowledge and conviction. Some can say assent and some translations have assent. Whatever the case, it's the same intention. And the intention is that we have to know the true God. So here we have John writing these things that you can know these truths. So it's not so many times people say, well, Christianity is just believism, or Christianity is just about the leap of faith. In other words, it's just irrational. 
There's, there's no reason behind it. You just believe it. And as you just believe it, it means something to you. Well, the problem with this is Christ is only real because I believe him to be real. That's not how John's presenting this. And that's important to understand this. John's basically saying, it's not up to me whether you're persuaded or not. I know he's a Christ. He has presented evidence that he is a Christ. He has shown us he's a Christ. The Old Testament lays out what the Christ looks like. This is the Christ. Now, whether you believe it or not does not annul, you know, take away who he is, and it doesn't affirm who he is. In other words, Christ is Christ whether I believe him or not. Uh, the truth of Christ is true whether I affirm it or not. My, my faith in him does not impact whether or not Christ is really the Christ. And that's what John wants us to understand. It's not about Christ coming to us and saying, I need people to believe this so that people will think that this is really true. John's saying, no, it's true. That's the reality. It's true. Whether you believe it or not, that's up to you. But the reality is this gospel is true. So when the catechism tells us we have to know the Christian faith, the catechism's not saying this is some irrational belief system that's sentimental. It's just some leap of faith that we arbitrarily take. The catechism's saying, no, God has revealed himself in his word. We know that God is real. The very fact the sun comes up every day proves that God is real. He is Lord over this creation he continues to guide this creation. God is God. So the catechism wants us to under, understand we know this truth. As we study the word and we grow in this truth, we're growing in our conviction, right? So as we believe Christ is a Christ, we might read the gospel for the first time and kind of be taken back by some of the things that happen. But as you know the story and you read it again, you say, oh, I'm seeing these connections and the deeper things of what John's doing and using the Old Testament and the Psalms and who Christ is, and you start making more connections. So the Catechism is saying that as we grow in this, as we study this, we become more sure in our knowledge. And so it's not that knowledge is so bad, but as we grow in this knowledge, it also has to have this confidence that, that we have to rule our lives in a way that our God is real. When James talks about trials, Hebrews talks about discipline. You know, not necessarily, I mean, Hebrews affirms, we, we don't really like it. It's not something we, we pray, Lord, please discipline me. Uh, we, we don't want the Lord to do that. But Hebrews is saying, James is saying that when the Lord by his providence brings us through tough times, what is he doing? He's shaking us up. He's taking the things that we trust in, which... Our individual idols, as we've talked about that, the places where we daydream, the things that we think will give us satisfaction and joy, not necessarily saying they're all evil or all necessarily wrong, but they're sayings we're tempted to trust in. And what's the Lord doing? Well, he's shaking us loose. He's showing us that those things will not preserve us until the end. Only God will. And so this is where that knowledge and conviction really takes residence within us where we start asking ourselves, do I really believe it? Well, this is where we go through the different seasons of life and our times of doubt. We say, well, first, I believe Christ is a Christ. 
Secondly, as I face these trials, what have I done? Well, yeah, there's times I haven't performed as well as I would have liked. But nevertheless, where did I return? What, what did God do? Well, he always shepherded me back to him, didn't he? He always called me back through whatever means or through whatever uh, intentions he had. I always came back to him. And when I came back to him, where, were, where, was, where was my conviction? My conviction was again, no, this Lord is real. This Lord is sure. His promises are certain. And so it's important to understand that it's not just the knowledge. When, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, two, knowledge puffs up, Paul's not telling us to be irrational. The, the Corinthian church is falling into a sort of this pre-Gnostic view of thinking that their super knowledge makes them super Christians and they're above all these other things, and they don't need to listen to these apostles. That's for the young Christians. They're advanced in their thinking. And Paul's saying, be careful, because now your knowledge is starting to get ahead of you. You're starting to deny the significance of the Word of God. You're starting to put yourself above the Word of God, and that puts us in a dangerous place. We can ask questions. We can wrestle. But we shouldn't be putting ourselves above the Word of God thinking that somehow we're so advanced that we no longer need these truths. And so that's what the catechism's calling us back to understand. We need to wrestle with these things, think about these things, contemplate these things, and let them truly take residence within us. And so when we think about this, this faith, what is this faith truly communicating to us? Because I, I mentioned that faith is the essence of assurance. That's just a fancy way of saying that when you believe in Christ... It means you have Christ. Or when you believe in Christ, all the things that Christ promises are yours. And I love how the catechism walks through this because it doesn't just leave it out there. In other words, for us to think, well, I wonder what that really means and what the contract is. What does it mean? We have the forgiveness of sins. What a wonderful thing. Right there, take hold of Christ by faith. Your sins are not counted against you in terms of the eternal consequences of the judgment you are not going to receive hell we possess an eternal righteousness again I, I i talk about john murray but i appreciate so much how murray talks about adoption being that movement from the courtroom to the family room i think what, what a wonderful picture we're moving from standing before the righteous judge trembling wondering what the verdict is going to be we're also in a righteous judge says well come into my my family room, and let's have hors d'oeuvres, basically. Let's fellowship. Let's dine. Uh, this, it isn't just that you're cut free, and then you're out of here, and I'm sick of you. It's, no, I'm going to fellowship with you. I am your God, and you are uh, one of my servants, one of my people, one of my redeemed. And then it says, generally, we have salvation, a reminder that we truly possess the benefits of Christ. And so what the catechism is simply telling us is that as we believe Christ is our Redeemer, we live in the confidence that Christ is our Redeemer. I mean, that's all it's really getting at in terms of knowing who Christ is, living in that assurance, that conviction of who He is, or that assent, whatever you want to say. Now, going on then in terms of Scripture and what John's doing, one of the other reasons I wanted to go through this passage is we find Thomas. And we talk about him as a doubting Thomas, which 
I think he kind of gets a bad rap because you find other places in the gospel where it seems he can be a little more zealous. But he has this moment of weakness, and as a result, we call him the doubting Thomas. And I think it's, it's so significant that Christ in the epilogue comes to Peter after denying Christ three times. Thomas denies the probability of a resurrected Christ. He says there's no way. When people die, they die. We saw Christ in the cross. We saw a spear pierce his side. We know that reality. You do not come back from that. Not possible. Not going to happen. And so what does Thomas say? He goes, I'm going to believe this not on the testimony of the apostles. I mean, think about this. He's not believing this because the other apostles tell him it's true. He says, I will only believe this truth if I myself can verify it by touching his hands and sticking my hand in his side. Only then will I believe you guys are not tricking me. And so when, when you hear that, you think, well, how mad is Christ really going to be? I mean, here's one of his disciples who walked with Christ, heard Christ talk about the Messiah being rejected, the need of rejection, facing death, and being raised on the third day. How mad is Christ going to be? Well, Christ stands there, and he says, Thomas, touch my hands. Put your hand in my side. Is it me? And Thomas says, my Lord, my God. He understands the significance of what has happened. Not only has Christ graciously come to him, but he realizes the promises of God have been validated because Christ is raised from the dead. Christ then goes on, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. What, what does that mean? Right here, John 20, verse 30, and John 21, I guess we could say 25. The point is, those who have read the apostolic witness, who have read what the apostles have attested to and have said, Amen. This is true. My Lord has been raised. My Lord Jesus Christ has overcome death. The very promises that he has made have been confirmed. Because what's the fundamental drive? That you may believe. That's why John's writing this. That you may believe understanding who Christ is. And so we need to embrace this with a believing heart and understanding that as we believe and as we know that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, we have life. Look throughout John's Gospel. What does life mean? Life already at the beginning in 1 verse 4. In him was life and the life was the light of man. In other words, as we take hold of Christ by faith, we're taking hold of Christ by faith, which is our consciousness of possessing Christ. Why do we have Christ? Because the Spirit has broken into our lives. I mean, in our times of doubt, this is where we need to turn. Why am I wrestling with God? Why am I doubting these promises? Why do I wonder if this is really true? Wait a minute, I believe God is real. Why do I believe God is real? Well, because the Holy Spirit has worked that in your heart. That's where you got to find your fundamental assurance. Because again, it's not because I have believed. It's not because I have done something. It's because I believe by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit who has given me new life. 
and I can be assured that as I believe, I possess Christ. Now lastly and briefly, and I say uh, briefly because the catechism is going to be going through uh, the Holy Catholic faith or, or the Apostles' Creed. Well, what are these doctrines we are fundamentally supposed to believe? Well, as we go through the Apostles' Creed, we're going to find, you know, that God created the world. There's a trinity. We believe Jesus is God. We believe Jesus is our sole redeemer. He's the one who was taken on flesh by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. We believe that Christ has suffered, suffered for our sins. He has died. He has endured hell, which is the essence and he sent into hell. And then the third day he rose again from the dead. The essence of that is he endured hell. And then he's been raised. And that's so important because if Christ is not raised from the dead, we're still in our sins. We may as well go home. There is no Christianity. And this is empty believism. It's just a sentimentality. But because Christ has been raised from the dead, we have the affirmation and assurance that his work is real. And so wrapping up then these verses in terms of this Catholic faith, why is John writing this? It's important to understand he's not writing this haphazardly. He's carefully choosing these events. He wants us to understand in this defense of the faith that this is the Christ. This is the one. He wants us to understand that this is written. Uh, this is not some mystical vision. It's important to understand this. So often we can think in terms of uh, the inspiration of the scriptures that, you know, the writer's just there and he's just kind of writing with his eyes closed and then this comes to pass. But this is actually John saying, I've worked. I've worked by the providence of God, by the providence of God. This is a product that has come about, but it's a product of his work. He has written these things. He's researched these things. He's, he's thought about what he has seen and, and his significance and, and how does he communicate that significance. Those sorts of things. Uh, so when you read the Gospels, you read Scripture, understand that, that there is an intention that the author has, that, that he's using the Old Testament for a reason and, and be conscious of that. And so this is written. Thirdly, he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's not that John is saying, I think it's probable that Jesus is the Christ. I think there's a high probability that this one is the one. And so here are my reasons for that high probability. That's not what Jesus, that's not what John says. He says Jesus is the Christ. So the Christ means that this is the anointed one. The one who is anointed to save his people to accomplish the plan of God. It is not that he is a Christ. The Christ is what the grammar is communicating. The one. The one promised. This is the one who was promised, who has come. And it's not because John is just asserting this. Again, doesn't matter if I believe Jesus is a Christ or not. Doesn't really impact the truth of the gospel. I do believe it. But the gospel is still true whether I believe it or you believe it or not. The gospel message is still true. That's John's point. And he's saying, I want you right now to believe Jesus is a Christ, to take hold of him by faith. That's where you have life. But notice also, and this is another thing that we mentioned last time uh, with Jehovah Witnesses, that it's not just that Jesus is a Christ, 
but he's the son of God. Now this is making reference to the prologue, that the very light that's in God, the very essence that's in God, as, as we heard last time, the radiance that makes up God, the glory that makes up God, the character, the attributes that make up God, are those same attributes in Christ. And so John's not seeing Christ as a first creation. Read the prologue. He's seeing Christ as truly the Son of God. He is not a man who stepped up to the mission. He is not a man that God arbitrarily chose. He is the Son of God sent into the world by the Father in the power of the Spirit to do the work that God has given him to do. Read John 17. Father, I've completed the work you've given me to do. This is in John's Gospel. But we also know in terms of this faith and when we say Catholic faith, sometimes this concerns us when you say, whoa, what do we mean by a Catholic faith? We're not saying Roman Catholic faith. That's the distinction we want to make. Catholic just means universal. And so we're not believing faith in faith, right? We don't just believe and as we believe, we, we have blessings. What the universal faith is saying is you're looking forward or looking to the promise of Christ. So I say looking forward, we think of Hebrews 11, all those saints throughout the ages who looked to the very testimony that John gives us, to the Christ. And as we have this faith in Christ, we have the assurance that we possess the person of Christ. As John assures us lastly, we have life in his name. So this believing, this faith means we have life in his name. Not just Jewish individuals, not just the saints in the Old Testament looking to the promise, but even us pig-eating Gentiles have life in his name. That's the assurance. Not that we have to somehow be identified with Abraham genealogically. As we take hold of Christ by faith, we have life in his name. And so when we talk about this Catholic faith, we're just speaking of the universal faith. Uh, the faith of the church throughout the ages, the faith that looks to the one Jesus Christ who has come, conquered, fulfilled the Father's mission, and secures our life. And so in conclusion then, how do we know that this Christ is our Christ? How do we know that we move from a potential redemption or we might be redeemed or we know there's redemption, but how do we know this redemption is my redemption? The simple answer is that if you believe in Christ, you have the redemption of Christ. That's what question answer 21 is telling us. That's where you need to start. Do you believe that Christ is your redeemer? Well, then walk in that. Proceed in the confidence that he is your redeemer. We, 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 we don't know the mechanics of when the spirit works. We don't know how the spirit works. The spirit blows wherever the spirit blows, like the wind is what John 3 is about. But what we know is that when we come to faith in Christ and we believe in Christ, we know this is not accidental. It's by the grace and power of God. It's not some mystical thing that maybe at some point we could be conscious of. No, as we believe in Christ, we have Christ. That's what John is telling us. When you believe in the name of Christ, you have Jesus Christ. Live in light of that reality. The assurance then of where I return again to the brilliance of Calvin, that as long as Christ remains outside of us,
he is of no benefit to us. As we take hold of Christ by faith, Christ is no longer outside of us. We are joined to Christ. He is joined to us. And as the Apostle Paul puts it so wonderfully, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Let us proceed in that confidence of knowing we have the blessings of Christ as we take hold of him by faith. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.